0: This is the Archetype Project. You're joining us for the first time. The Archetype Project is an in-depth look at the multitude of paths made available to you with a degree in architecture. And if this is not your first time, welcome back. And I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Today, we are talking to Donna Sink, campus architect at the Indianapolis Museum of Art. Donna's had an interesting journey and has some amazing views and beautiful thoughts about the profession. So you guys are going to want to take notes on this one. I think her Twitter bio says it best. Just an architect trying to make the world a more beautiful and just place. Here's Donna. This is Donna. Hey, can you hear me? I can hear you. Awesome. That's perfect.
1: I'm sorry. Yeah, I just had Lawrence, our IT guy, just said, yeah, I can turn it. And he set up the microphone and it seemed to all be working, but then I couldn't get it to work with you.
0: If there's one thing architecture school taught me, it's that technology will always fail you when you need it the most.
1: So uh, my name is Donna Sink. My official job-related title is campus architect at the Indianapolis Museum of Art. I would just call myself an architect, and uh, part of my goal lately with my career is to expand on what that idea of being an architect means. So um, I have a full-time job in the facilities department of a large uh, art museum in a Midwestern city, Indianapolis. Um, I also am very active on two different boards. The uh, Indianapolis chapter of the American Institute of Architects, I'm the... um, Vice President this year, President-elect for next year for the city of Indianapolis, uh, and I serve on the board of People for Urban Progress, which is a uh, design-oriented nonprofit that does a lot of work in the city of Indianapolis. Um, I also am doing a podcast right now on architecture for connect and I would almost call connect another job of mine, although it, it is not a job in any in any sense. It's more like my uh, my. My um, nonprofit work—it's just uh, a way that I like to engage with the with the architecture community. Um, I would say, yeah, I'm Donna Singh, architect. That's the most important thing about me—is that I am an architect.
0: Let's go ahead and just start from the beginning. When did architecture pop onto your radar? Um, there, I guess there's a, a two camps of people: people that have been playing with Legos since day one and have always known, and then people who had no idea what architecture was until they were dropped in school. So where do you fall in that in that spectrum?
1: I'm I'm one of the Legos people, except that it was Barbies. Um, and it was making the apartment for the Barbie. And then once the apartment was done, it was like, oh, now what do I do? i do not not interested in just playing with the doll itself. I just really like setting up her living environment. Um, my parents, uh, I grew up in Arizona, and my parents, uh, we had a big yard and a horse and a pool. And uh, my parents were really into doing work on the landscape. So we had these great um, 1970s Sunset Magazine um, deck design books around the house. And I could totally credit those with one of the reasons that I became an architect. I loved looking at these books and looking at the plan that was drawn and then the photograph that went with it and sort of seeing how those two things work together. I mean, I started doing that when I was eight years old. And so I went into drafting classes in high school because at that time there was no kind of architecture track. It was drafting class. um, And uh, knew from the first day I visited the University of Arizona, College of Architecture and saw a model of a geodesic dome that, yeah, that's what I wanted to do. So I'm definitely in that, figured it out really early camp. Um, But then my schooling was a little... A little odd, I guess, because I I got a five-year Bachelor of Architecture from the University of Arizona, and it was a very practice-oriented degree, very much about getting a job, putting together a set of documents, communicating with contractors, communicating with clients. There was a big emphasis on programming and getting to know the client and and their needs, Um, and very much it was about form um, emerging from the needs of the client and, and the context of the local climate. And then I sort of switched gears and went to Cranbrook to get my graduate degree. So Cranbrook was entirely about living in your own head and figuring out, you know, from an intellectual and bodily and theoretical aspect where architecture, what architecture is about. So I sort of did two years of, of deep immersion into just thinking about material, space, form, the very theoretical aspects of architecture. Um, and then I graduated and went to work in a firm. <laughs>
0: Awesome. All right, well, it's it's, uh, it's the more common uh, path. I, I've never heard the Barbie, <laughs>
1: the Barbie <side laughs> of the
0: story. Um, so that's actually really, really interesting. I'm sure when they developed architecture Barbie, you were probably one of the first ones in line to, to snag that.
1: You know, I remember when the campaign was going on to start up Architecture Barbie, I remember talking about it with various people online about what should she be like. Um, I will point out, I just recently went to give a talk on architecture um, at the uh, Tuskegee University uh, campus, the the College of Architecture down there. And, you know, the Tuskegee campus is all about, from its founding, um, the the combination of the mind and the hand. So this combination of craft and making and understanding labor and the value of labor as well as then the intellectual and philosophical development of the mind. And I would say my, uh, that message resonated with me all the way through that I was learning in undergrad, very much the hand skills. And then I went to Cranbrook specifically to do these two years of just thinking about the mind. Um, and to me, that is where architecture lies is in the the hand and the, the philosophy. So, um, between the you know, between and within both of those realms, that's where we make architecture. So um, yeah, I would say I didn't have a particularly traditional education, but I feel like I sort of went to both extremes, the extreme of practice and application, and then the extreme of theory.
0: Sweet. Um, so in that journey, uh, you graduated from school, you worked a little bit, then you went to, to Cranbrook um when did you kind of look at the profession and look at your your path within the profession and decide you know what i think that i want to try something a little different or i mean furthermore it seems like you're really involved in in uh not necessarily promoting but um expanding the the public's knowledge of of non-traditional architecture quote unquote uh when did that get get put on your radar and become one of your passions
1: so I, I graduated from Cranbrook and went to Philadelphia and worked in a great firm there um, called, at the time it was Atkin Olsen Shade, or sorry, that's what it's now called, Atkin Olsen Shade. Um, and it was 10 years in a firm that was very interested in doing good work, but also in having a work-life balance. So they encouraged us to sort of do community involvement where we could. Um, I was at that time as an intern working long hours, you know, so devoted to what I was doing and um, also, my husband and I bought a house and were renovating it. So I didn't have that much opportunity to get involved in the community in Philly. Um, and then I moved to Indianapolis. And I moved to Indianapolis because my best friend from undergraduate school, we literally met on the first day of undergraduate school, um, and he was from Indianapolis. He invited me to come move to Indianapolis with him and work in his firm. He's self-employed. So, um my husband and I were both ready for a change, and when we came to Indianapolis, I very specifically said, I want to take advantage of the slower pace of Midwestern life to be able to involve myself in a community. Um, I need to learn Indianapolis fast if I want to get, you know, the sort of networking to do the kind of work I wanted to do, and so I started just talking to people, meeting with people, volunteering for things, doing as much as I could out in the community. I saw it very much as a networking opportunity to meet potential clients or potential employers, Um, and it just was the way I wanted to live my life after being 10 years in the, you know, the go, go fast East coast city. I was ready to, to slow down and sort of look at what my community was made up of. I have been very fortunate to come into a very lovely community of progressive people that are really interested in improving Indianapolis as a city. I mean, I think across the board in the country, we are seeing more of an interest in cities and the diversity and the opportunity and the, the uh, progressiveness and the acceptance that cities offer. And so I really wanted to help to bring that about in our city of Indianapolis.
0: We had this conversation with Donna around the time Indiana was facing some bad press and national media over proposed legislation that was perceived to be anti-gay that was about to be voted on in its Senate. It was really interesting hearing Donna talk about the role the city can play as a force of welcoming and progressive thought, things that we normally don't associate with the built environment.
1: Um, so I got hooked up with people for urban progress and I'm now a board member there. And what we do is take, well, the, the, the nonprofit started by, um, uh, the, the RCA dome, which was the place where the Colts used to play, the Indianapolis Colts used to play. It was yeah. a fabric boarded, uh, stadium from the 1970s. And, uh, when it was demolished because we built a new stadium, the, the city had no plans to do anything with that roof material. And the People for Urban Progress's founder, Michael Bricker, who is also um, an architecture, uh, uh, architecture graduate but has never practiced and is not really interested in practicing. He's so busy doing this other kind of nontraditional work. Um, he said to the city, what's happening to all that fabric? And the city said, well, it's you know, going to a landfill. So he said, no, that's not to happen and he formed the nonprofit and rescued 13 acres of fabric um, found a place to store it and then started working with local um seamstresses and designers basically to create bags wallet all kinds of things that we can sell and the proceeds we make from selling the bags and whatnot go towards doing things like um a covered shade structure made out of the same fabric that's in a community park or a, a seating area downtown where you can just sit and sort of watch the world walk by. So we're very much involved in small scale urban design interventions that are generally for nonprofits or with other nonprofits. They're, they're um, uh, intended to be very, very publicly accessible to everyone. So sorry, the, I'm rambling on from where the question started, but the, I think the question was about <laughs> um, making that decision. And yeah. really, when I moved to Indianapolis, I decided, yes, I need to, as a professional, get involved with my city and find out what's going on here and how I can make it a better place.
0: I think it's one of those things that I'm noticing a trend, um, and it it tends to be in the Midwest, but also in some places in the South. People like you, and I guess people like, I guess I could say us, it it seems like we gravitate towards places where we kind of have a blank slate to play. One of our, um, our other archetypes is Katie Newell, who's done a lot of work in Detroit and did a lot of work in Detroit, basically, when it was like mini anarchy um, in Detroit and was just doing some really really cool stuff only because it it was it was a, it was a blank canvas and no one was going to tell her that she couldn't do it um, and it's it's it seems people like that aren't drawn to the New Yorks and the Chicagos and the Los Angeleses per se just because maybe there's there's not that freedom freedom doesn't exist
1: I, I absolutely agree I think one of my 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 uh, friend and co board member at PUP, Michael Ripper, said, you know, in a place like Indianapolis, you can create culture. In a place like New York, there's plenty of opportunity to consume culture because there's so much there. But in a place like Indianapolis or Detroit or, you know, some of these smaller mid-tier cities, you can make that culture. Because, yeah, no one's there saying, oh, that's not good enough. Oh, you're, you know, you can't do that. It's just a totally, like you said, a blank slate. And if you want to if you have an idea and you want to do it, you just go out and find some other people that want to do it with you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, um, so let's see where this is going from here. Let's see. Next question. I'm looking at my list. I'm trying to decide which one I want to, where I want to go from here. Okay, so, I mean, one of the things, one of the reasons we're doing this campaign in the first place is um, from a lot of our uh, partners as as AIS, the ones that are or do fit the bill of archetype, um, one of the biggest complaints that a lot of them have is you know there aren't there isn't a place uh, really um, where they can call home if that makes sense. So I guess the the question is, do you feel like you know doing this different thing that you're doing, um, which is becoming a little bit more mainstream, but it's still pretty fringe. Do you feel like you have a home within the profession? Um, and I guess the follow-up question would be, do you want that? Do you want a home? Within the profession, the professional
1: discourse. I feel like I definitely. I, I feel like I belong in the profession very much, but I feel like my role right now is to make sure that other people feel like they have a home in the profession. And I say that because I'm a you know I'm a I'm I'm almost I'll be 48 years old in three days. Um, I'm older than emerging professionals, but I'm really, really interested in what we are giving the emerging professionals within our discipline. Um, I'm giving this talk at the AIA National Convention this year that's specifically about non traditional practice and how many amazing, mostly young people I am seeing around the country doing awesome non traditional work and how much the AIA and the very um, old guard registered architect discipline, how at risk we are of losing those great people if we don't start to make them feel more welcome. I mean, it it sort of breaks my heart to hear you say that people, you know, that these young people feel like they don't have a home in the profession when they're not doing the traditional, you know, shop drawings, whatever. Um, I think that the AIA's and I have done work with the AIS, sorry, with the AIA Emerging Professionals Group, and the Emerging Professionals Group is very interested in making sure that we can claim these people in our fold, that we can claim them as architects, even if they're not doing traditional practice, even if they're not maybe even registered, or but just have an architecture degree, that we can say someone is, you know, this person is an architect and they are doing amazing work in the realm of filmmaking or graphic design or community involvement or whatever that topic may be that people are being led to, transit design, you know, all of the things that sort of work around making our communities interesting. Um, so I kind of feel like I am a I am on a mission to tell the people older than me that the people younger than me need to be accepted for what they are finding within the profession. I mean, it's a it's a hard profession, right? It's it's an incredibly difficult profession. It's it's arduous. You graduate with tons of debt, you start at the bottom of the totem pole and you don't get any respect and you can't even call yourself an architect. That you know, that that really puts off a lot of people. And I feel like my goal is to help the people a little above my generation and of my generation understand that this the younger generation needs to be welcomed and accepted on their own terms. Because <laughs> the emerging professionals are the ones that are going to make our discipline in the next 40 years, right?
0: That's my number one message is just like, you know what, guys, like, these people, and it's weird that especially if you talk about institutions like the AIA, and I mean, I'm very critical of the AIA, but it's in I'm critical of the AIA in the same way that you pick on your little brother. Like, I'm allowed to pick yeah, on them, but exactly. when anybody else picks on them, it's a serious problem.
1: <laughs> that is exactly, that is the best definition I've heard of exactly how I feel about it, yeah, exactly.
0: Um, but like, yeah, I've, I've, I, I talk, every time I talk to anyone within the institute, I'm just like, you know, it's, as we're doing this project, I'm, I'm pinpointing these people, and there's really no, there's no negative to claiming these people as exactly. part of the family, there's no, there's no con. It's all pro, no con. Um, Absolutely. All of the uh, shortages that we're seeing, whether it be minority, whether it be gender equity, whether it be um, happiness, pay gap, literally all of those are found in this disparate group of archetypes. I had a list of thirty four at one point, and I had two white guys. And I looked at my, I looked at Charlie, and I was like, Hey, Charlie, I have a reverse, I have a reverse diversity yeah. problem right now. Exactly. <laughs> And exactly. furthermore, it's, it's kind of prestige. Like I think about the message or, or the, the opportunity that we, we tend to say that we as a profession have in that we can't and don't properly communicate our value to the public. We don't properly communicate what it is that we do to the public. And it's because we're speaking two different languages. But there are people like you who exist in between, that are that land bridge between one and the other. And they're not always practicing architects. Often they're not practicing architects. I've got um, someone on my list who's the head chef at one of the highest rated restaurants in Southern California. It's really sad and we're missing out on so much.
1: It is because, I mean, a chef is someone who is absolutely involved in the material experience of being human, right? They're, yeah. they're, the, the food is just the most basic level of that. So someone who can design an experience and who can make the world a a place where people want to live. <laughs> you know that's, that's all design. It is. Um, as the world gets more and more virtual too, which I'm not going to slam on Facebook. I love Facebook. But um, you know, as we get more and more into these virtual interactions, these actual physical interactions of things like going to a restaurant and eating an amazing meal, those become so much more important that we, we need to keep applying our expertise to them and making sure that when people do engage with the physical world, it's welcoming to everyone, as you say, and it's enjoyable, it's pleasurable. It's all of the things that help humans form a better community.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Uh, I guess this is the good next question. I think everyone, I can't, I can't say that I developed my, my thought process independently of outside influences. So let's talk about influences for a second. Did you have any mentors while you were in school or kind of like standout professors that... You either succeeded because of, or succeeded in spite of. Um.
1: <laughs> yes, <Yeah, laughs> <Maybe> absolutely. <both. laughs> I think we all have. I think we all have mentors. But I think it is a task of us as architects to be mentors as well. So I'm I'm busily mentoring people right now, and I would say, looking back, my you know I had I had three great life-changing professors in my undergraduate school that, that were um, Kirby Lockard who was actually one of the professors who would give you a little side job like can you help me draft these things so that you could actually learn a little something about what it was like to practice uh Corky Poster who is the first architect I knew who also was a planner because he felt that you know it was very important that architects not just design a building as an object in isolation that it's all interconnected and woven into an urban fabric and Dennis Dockstater who um was all about the the post user occupancy evaluation and really drove home the notion that we are designing for people, for actual people, human beings, not just, you know, designing a building because it looks cool. It's actually a place that people are going to inhabit and use. Um so those three were my big undergrad influences. I would also say and I think every every architecture student listening to this would understand, you know, my my fellow students in school were so important. The fact that we had studio culture where we could live together basically, you know, late nights doing the crazy things late at night that happened, just that as a student uh, peer support group was so important to to who I am today. I'm still best friends with some of those best friends from my my you know when I was 18 years old. Um, And then, of course, at Cranbrook, uh, I was at Cranbrook under Dan Hoffman, and Dan is just such a a, a poet and yet also a registered architect and someone who really believes in practice. So um, he, of course, had a huge influence on me. The other thing I would say in that realm, though, and this sort of shoots off the rails a little into the virtual, is that Archonnect has been an amazing place for me. It's been a place to discuss with other people, like-minded and not like-minded, what is going on in architecture. It's been a place of enormous growth for me to be able to compare stories. And um, it's just sort of an extension of that studio environment into the workday, I would say.
0: We're talking about mentorship. Do you, if you could give, pass on a piece of advice to our students listening who might be considering divergent paths? Because one thing that really kind of grinds my gears um, about, I can't believe I just used that phrase, Um, um, uh, about architecture school is, I don't know if it's school, I don't know if it's a profession, but something about it, um, as a student, you feel this pressure to follow a path. You feel this pressure to follow a kind of a cookie cutter set out, um, um, predetermined menu, uh, leading to this this penultimate career of architect. And it's all the while we're learning how to design and create and work systems and learning that nothing is unrelated. Um, so we end up with students that just you know have these big ideas and big dreams, but because they're They're so focused on that path, and they're they're so, uh, I don't know, within that cookie cutter, they they don't see anything outside of that, even though they have a passion and and excitements that are not necessarily related to that. So if you had any piece of advice for students of architecture today, you know, in school, whether they're thinking about licensure or not thinking about licensure, what would it be?
1: Well, first of all, I encourage everyone at this point to get registered just because it feels so good. You know, it feels... Good to have that license and say, yeah, no one can take this away from me, except of course for me if I commit a felon or something. But I'm not <laughs> going to do that. Um, so I do encourage people to get registered simply for that sense of personal satisfaction. Um, but the other thing I would really emphasize, because and I and I have lots of friends and people I've met on the podcast who are not interested in getting registered, and I totally understand that. So I, so no judgment. Um, but the other thing I would really emphasize is school is so much about design. And architecture has so many aspects that are not about design. There is so much to do in the field of architecture that are not straight up what you would call like form making designing a building. and I in my mentorship i didn't answer I, I didn't discuss Judith Chafee, who Judith Chafee was an amazing one of the first female modernists, and um she caught a little bit at u of a when I was there, but she was she was on her way out and um she overheard me one time saying that I just didn't think I was all that good a designer, that I loved everything I was doing, but I don't think I'm that good a designer. And she sort of said offhandedly to me, well, you know, the discipline needs spec writers too. And that's a pretty harsh comment. Um, (laughs) if you knew Judith (laughs) and how she was a constant chain smoker and had this deep gravelly voice and was just, and wore these huge corbu glasses. You would say, oh my God, she just burned you. And you know, she did. But at the same time, that comment resonated with me that, yeah, there are so many things that are needed in architecture. And I have pretty much always played a support role to other people designing, and I still love it. I love, you know, helping other people figure out how to get their vision realized. Um, I love all of the work involved in doing architecture. And for me, that started to mean then not just the building, but how does the building meet the sidewalk and what is the sidewalk? And does the sidewalk connect to a good place to cross the street or not? And if it does cross the street, does it cross the street to anything you would want to go to? You know, so that to me sort of became not just about the building, but about the bigger city design that I was interested in. Um, So, uh, you know, for anyone who's, who's, Who's thinking about or, or suffering in school under that feeling that you all have to be like the number one hot designer? That is just not true. There are so many happy paths within architecture that are not about being that one great visionary. And in fact, I do think the discipline is is changing and becoming much more about collaborative work and teamwork. And,
0: and then this one is, I think, especially applicable to you. And I just I realize I've I've forgotten to ask it in a couple of the other interviews. Um, for the public, I mean, this, this platform, the architect platform is meant to reach, ideally, people that are not involved in architecture at all, including students, um, but the, the public will be hearing this. So if you had a message for you know, and people that are just not even in the profession, people that don't understand the profession and, and haven't really had it presented to them in any sort of clear, concise way, what would that be? That's a hard one, I know.
1: It is, but um, it, it reminds me, and this at least touches on it, of a, a quote I heard from someone, and I can't remember where this was, but um, the quote was, uh, there's no such thing as no design. You're either going to get good design or bad design. So how I would translate that is when you walk around your city or wherever you are and you see um, you know, that it's easy to walk from this place to that place, and there are pleasant things to look at, and it's, Those are all because someone designed it that way, right? Every curb, every sidewalk, every tree that's planted, every light fixture that's on a building, every column that supports a porch, everything is designed. And if we don't pay attention to those moments of simple things like walking down the street to get a cup of coffee, that can be a quality experience. But if we don't pay attention to it, it's not just going to not be an experience. It's going to be a bad experience, and and we don't want that. Who you know, no one wants unattractive or ugliness in their life uh, when things can be at the very least pleasant and at the best something that actually enhances your your life, your your moment in a day. Um, so I would just tell people that design is everywhere, and you can choose to think conscientiously about it and come up with a good solution, or you can just sort of bumble through and, and have what ends up being something that hinders you in your day. So you're better off hiring an architect or someone who's a good designer to try to help sort those things out. Um, yeah, because we are surrounded by design. And, and and what I would say about the AIA I Look Up campaign, which I love, I think it's beautiful, is just to tell people to look at their world a little more. You know, look at what's beautiful in the world. Uh, you know, a, a a brick with a shadow on it or or uh, the way the sun hits a molded uh, limestone profile around a, a window frame, all of these tiny little moments of design are are so beautiful, and I would just encourage people to look at the world more and then start to demand that it be better.
0: Cool. i That's a great message. I, I couldn't have said that any better myself.
1: I, well, can I say one other thing? One other oh, thing just absolutely, to, to yeah. don't keep, um I moved around a lot. I had several jobs during my summer in school, and then I had a couple of different jobs after graduating, and then at age, you know, 38, I shifted to an entirely new career of doing residential remodel, and then at age 46, I shifted to an entirely new career of doing facilities work. Um, I would tell people that when you're young, there is plenty of time to make mistakes, and if that means job hopping around a bit until you find something that you like, that's fine. There, there's so much time to do that. Uh, when you're an architect, you're still considered young until you're 40. So go ahead when you're those first few years out of school, if you're feeling sort of um, frustrated and like you're not being fulfilled, go ahead and try something else because there's plenty of time to say, okay, I tried this for a couple of years. It wasn't good. I'm going to shift back to something else. Um, and I think that's sort of the nature of careers these days anyway, is to do a lot of trying of new things. So, um, yeah, that's actually a quote from my good friend Wes Jans, who's a professor at Ball State. Is you're young, there's plenty of time to make mistakes.
0: I like that. I want you to tell us a story. Tell us a story of a a moment, kind of a odd or funny or or powerful, whatever, defining moment um, so far in your mm-hmm. in your journey, whether it be in your career in your education, that kind of sets you on track for for the things that you're doing now. Now, when I asked this question, I did not expect the answer that I got. But take note, Donna is about to define architecture in one of my favorite ways that I've ever heard in my entire life. And it's a pretty awesome story.
1: Um, Okay, this is actually a moment that's not you could say it's not related to architecture, although in my mind every single thing in the world is related to architecture so um, <laughs> i was uh, I was riding on a city bus one day uh, in Philadelphia and it was standing room only in the bus and I was carrying i specifically remember I was carrying material samples for a materials board that we were putting together for a project um, and so my arms were full of like carpet and I know I had at least one tile sample and I had my briefcase and I had my lunch bag and I was wearing high heels and I was standing on the bus and the bus lurched to a to a stop and this gentleman standing next to me just gently reached out and grabbed my arm to make sure that I didn't fall because I was on the verge of falling over. It was a it was, you know, my hands were full, I couldn't hold on to anything. And he was wearing like a, a a blue collar, like a like he was a maintenance worker or something type uniform. And he just grabbed my arm, helped me so that I didn't fall, and I said, "Thank you," and he said, "No problem and it was a moment of me that just to me that meant it showed to me that we are all humans trying to live together and we're all trying to do the best we can, and when we can help each other, we do um, and what we need to do is not try to hurt each other <laughs> you know <laughs> um so I think I truly believe in a in in communitarianism meaning We are shaped by our communities. And when I live in a community like downtown Philadelphia and I find that for the most part, people are just trying to do the best they can and to help each other out when they can, it makes me feel good about the world. And that's what I want architecture to serve is that those moments can happen. Those moments of just simple connection as human beings and recognition that we're all in this together. That that was transformative for me. And it's such a silly moment, isn't it? I was I was rescued from you know falling on my butt in a bus, <laughs> and uh, and it confirmed humanity for me.
0: <laughs> I happen to think it is beautiful, and I could not think of a better place to wrap up this call. That was great. <laughs> um, That was Donna Sink dropping some serious knowledge. I love that story, I love her story, and I hope you guys enjoyed it too. As per usual, this is the Archetype Project. It is a product of the American Institute of Architecture students since 1956. The AIAS has been dedicated to programming advocacy and efforts related to fostering the next generation of great design leader. To find out more, visit AIAS.org.